Hey, 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 you are strong and capable, and it's time that you knew it. So in this show, we're talking about leadership, mindset, mental health, authenticity. I want you to look in the mirror and love the human staring back. So if you're ready to dig into who you are, where you're going, and how to get there, if you're ready for real talk all with a side of glitter and laughter, then you're in the right place. Welcome. Hello, hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of The Strong and Capable. I'm your host, Bridget Heller, and I have one of my favorite people in the world, Miss Marlene Armstrong, on the podcast. You want to say, hey, Marlene? Hey. (laughs) Marlene is a dear friend of mine. This is legit, not just Insta friends or podcast friends. I love this human that I am seeing through Zoom right now, and I am so excited for you to meet her and to hear her story. This month, we're talking about transformation and how love can transform our life, whether it's self-love, love for others, someone loving us, or exploring all those different possibilities. And so I asked Marlene, because I knew her story, to come on and share a little bit of her story with us. Um, she has a beautiful bio. She's an incredibly accomplished human. I always say one of the smartest people I know, and she loves it when I say that. <laughs> no, this makes me really. giddy. <laughs> you I wish I could it. tell you you were the first person to ever tell me that, but <laughs> I know I'm not. That's the thing. You le- legit are that brilliant of a human being. <laughs> it's so funny because I don't think so. And so it makes me feel so good when other people say that. But isn't that how it is? Yeah. Right. We rarely see our own brilliance. It's a funny thing. So Marlene is um, an educator in every way. She started as a teacher. She's won so many awards. It's crazy. She's been principal. How many times have you been principal over schools? Um, this is my third time being a principal over a school, um, certainly served in other roles, assistant principal, dean of students, all those fun things that you have to do to get to be the principal. Um, but this is the third time. Mm -hmm. Yep. And Marlene is all about culture and change. And the cool thing about Marlene is that she's a visionary. So when she comes into a school, she's wanting to see what can we truly do for these kids? How how can we transform their lives? How can we get them to love education and to become the beautiful humans they can be? And so when she comes in, she's working on relationship buildings and student experiences and culture and all these beautiful things. So if you ever have the privilege of working with this woman, it's magic. It really is. But we're not going to start in her education world. I want to go a little personal, a little personal. So Marlene, tell us a little bit about your story, because there's a certain someone in your life who really transformed, really transformed your story through love. Tell us a little bit about that. So I grew up in a small rural town in Arizona called Duncan, Arizona. And, um, you know, that that's a, a beautiful place to start. And I had the idyllic childhood frame living in an ooky environment. Um, And by childhood frame, I mean, gosh, we lived on a farm, we had animals, I had the most amazing grandparents that you could ever imagine. But my dad was a drug addict, alcoholic who liked to have sex with his children. Um, And my mother was manic depressed and um, didn't know how to get out of that relationship. And so we grew up in a very abusive environment and 
you know, um, it's funny because, and I, I, I know I've heard this from other people, you don't know that this isn't normal until you get out of it. Um, and in my world, this was the normal. And um, so we were um, doing what we do in Duncan, Arizona. And um, my father went on strike when I was in seventh grade and we moved to Phoenix. Um, and it was a culture shock going from a graduating class of 22 um, to a graduating class of 682. And um, I started to spread my wings. I was so incredibly fortunate. My mother had me tested, I swear. I used to say that before it ever became a thing on Big Bang Theory. Um, but my mother had me tested and I went into the gifted program and was um, um, identified and uh, started having advanced classes and, and started really figuring out my life. Um, but still had the harsh reality of what was going on in ho at home. And so I went to school, um, happy to be at school to avoid being at home. And then, uh, you know, started working really early so I could avoid being at home more and help pay the bills since gas and electricity were off when we'd come home once in a while, you know, all those silly things. And so um, I, um, you know, did the things that most people do when they're struggling through um, those types of abuses um, when they're growing up, made poor decisions as a high school student, made poor relationship decisions um, one after another. And then um, as I was breaking up with one of the gentlemen that I dated um, my sophomore year of college, um, a friend of mine who I'd known since I was 14 said, okay, I've been waiting. You're single. I need you to wait one hot second and give me a chance. <laughs> and um, we went out on one date and I thought for sure it would only be one date. And I never looked back. Um, and Michael um, and I had been friends since I was 14 and it was a natural progression of a relationship. And what he saw in me, I really never understood. I couldn't believe that one human being could love somebody else so much, especially with all of my faults. Because I knew, I knew how ooky my life really was, um, but I kept it hidden and I didn't show people, but I had such a hard exterior and I was going to protect myself at all costs. Um, and Michael just chipped away at that, and chipped away at that and chipped away at that. Um, until I really was just a different person. And I don't even remember when the transformation happened, but it happened. And I remember thinking, wow, I'm not that mean, horrible person I used to be. Um, and I'm not unhappy like I used to be. And so, um, you know, the power of someone believing in you and believing that you are more than what you ever thought you could be is just an amazing power. Um, and so I transformed into a different person because of Michael. And I was so incredibly blessed and lucky to have him. And we built a beautiful, beautiful family together. Um, and Michael encouraged me, you know, I, um, he encouraged me to go to school. He encouraged me to get my master's degree. He encouraged me to work on my doctorate degree. He was the epitome of encourager. And, um, and all with a smile on his face. And, you know, Bridget, you've seen the pictures, like, and you saw him in real life. The man just adored me. And I don't know how I was so lucky to have someone adore me. And he just thought I was the best thing to ever walk on this earth. 
who's amazing. <laughs> yeah, so. so, so amazing. And I think too, as you were talking, I thought he made you feel safe. Oh, for sure. Mm-hmm. For sure. Um, safe and loved, you know, and no attachments to that love, you know, um, growing up. And I used to, I said this to other people before, um, anytime someone has told me that they've loved me, they've had the power to hurt me and have hurt me. And Michael broke that, you know, he, he, he broke that for me. Um, and, um, he was the first person in my life to love me unconditionally. So, and now I have four beautiful children that love me unconditionally and a grandson. (laughs) And they do, because I think, you know, when you think about love and how it transforms, I think about you're an amazing human, of course, but if you hadn't had Michael, what would that journey have looked like? Who would you have become? What love softens us. It really does. I probably would have turned um, into my mother because my, our personalities are so similar. Um, and my mother was an amazing, amazing person, but because of her manic depression and because of her relationship with my father, who was abusive to her as well, she never was able to be who she was truly meant to be um, until she divorced him, which was, um, I was, 24, 25 years old when they got divorced. Um, and she, she got to be who she was. And then she was diagnosed with breast cancer and died, um, fairly young. And so she really only had 10 years to live the Darlene that she was meant to be, um, because she didn't have my dad, you know, keeping her down. Um, and we became best friends. And honestly, we wouldn't have become best friends if it wasn't for my husband. My husband said, you have to give your mother another chance. You know what your mother went through. You know all of the things that your father did. You need to give her another chance. You need to talk to her. You need to mend this relationship. You'll regret it. Um, and that happened about three years before she was diagnosed with breast cancer. And that would have never happened if he had not pushed for me to build a relationship with her. Yeah, interesting. I think about, I always try and sum up right? When guests come on here and I'm all involved in the story, I'm having a hard time pulling back and summing it up right now. But like we said, it's forgiveness, it's safety, mm-hmm. it's this, this love and acceptance of the person as they are. And, you know, I remember telling Mike when I first met my husband, I can see, we both have Michaels in our life. <laughs> like I can see my favorite name, name, right? It's a great name. Um, I can see who you're going to be. And that's amazing but you can't love someone for who they're going to be. You have to love them for who they are at that point and be excited for the possibilities. Yeah, I think. Absolutely. And, you know, he's, he did that for me. And what's funny is I didn't have to do that for him. Um, I fell madly in love with him. Um, And, you know, it's funny because as strong, independent women, we don't want to be rescued. And I can't say that rescue is what he did, but rescue is what happened. Um, And it wasn't rescue, like, I'm going to come in and pay her bills, you know, I'm going to come in and buy her a car. Um, It was, he came in and put his arm beside me and said, you know, next time you have that conversation, 
maybe you could phrase it this way so that people wouldn't think you're mean. <laughs> I know your heart and your intent is not mean. So I know because I can see into your heart and that wasn't your intent, but maybe it came across that way. <laughs> Possibility. <laughs> maybe. Um, yes. And, you know, it's so funny because, you know, life happens, right? We got married. We're madly in love. Um, I was madly in love with being in love. And um, we uh, got pregnant right away. Um, I don't even think we were married seven seconds. Um, and so <laughs> um, had Michael Jr. Um, uh, in November, right after we got married in December. So you can do the counting. My grandfather insists that that first baby after you get married can take up to a year. Um, and, but um, had Michael and I was so worried about being the perfect mom and doing everything right that I wasn't being a loving mom. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And so Michael was like, just hold him, just love him, just enjoy being in the moment, um, take time. And um, I wanted to have a perfect house and a perfectly behaved child and a perfectly bathed child and a perfectly dressed child. And we were gonna do everything that the book said because if I did all of those things, then my children wouldn't turn out like my parents' children. Um, and I was just going to do everything right. And Michael's like, the only right thing you have to do is love your babies, you know? And, um, and I had them on a time schedule and oh, just all kinds of crazy things. Now that I think about it, if my, if my daughter did that to my grandson, I'd be like, knock some sense into you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think then that's another good point is when there's love, whether it's a mother, child, spouse, partner, aunt, uncle, friend you balance each other and you, you have that ability to say, Hey, check this out or think about this, but really it's a balance. You know, usually if one is, and that, I know that's again, how my, me and my mic are is my complete opposite. And that's why we work because we balance yeah. each other and best friends, right? You're not usually best friends with your exact carbon copy. You're, you're usually best friends with someone who compliments you in ways. Absolutely. And that's what Michael did for me. Michael was adventurous. Michael would take chances. Um, I was afraid, always afraid. Um, and so um, my biggest fear was that Michael was going to die and leave me with these four children. Um, and, um, you know, I wouldn't let him get a motorcycle. I wouldn't let him go hang gliding. I wouldn't let him go hiking by himself anymore. You know, I, I had a whole list of, hey, no, you can't do this because you're married and have children. Um, you can't drive fast. You can't have a sports car. You know, all the things that men want. <laughs> I said, no, not allowed. Um, because I had this horrible, horrible fear that I was going to lose him. And I knew, I knew I couldn't live without him. I knew without a shadow of a doubt that Marlene would cease to exist if Michael died. Um, and, you know, um, and that time came you know um and i don't know if you know but it was uh, february 5th um 2018 so just two days ago we i i i didn't celebrate that sounds weird but two days ago was the anniversary of his death and it was very very unexpected um he died of um pneumonia 
um, and we didn't even know he was sick and he was walking around with pneumonia and um, developed sepsis. And um, I got a call at four o'clock in the afternoon that, you know, from one of my daughters saying, mommy, daddy need you to come home and take him to the hospital. And the rational Marlene said, can't he go to urgent care? Um, <laughs> and she's like, no, he wants me to call 911 right now. And then I went into panic mode and um, drove home and uh, got here right as the ambulance was getting here. Um, and they worked on him and they tried so hard to save him and um, they uh, resuscitated him in our house. And by the way, when they come in, they don't come in nice and neat. They pick up your couch and throw it across the room. Um, <laughs> and um, I rode in the ambulance with him and several times um, he coded in the ambulance and got him to the emergency room and they worked on him for about two and a half hours in the emergency room. And, you know, um, as you're living it, you go, okay, here's what I've been afraid of my entire life. This is going to happen. Cause at that point we'd been together 28 years. And, um, you know, so all of my adult children were in the hospital. Um, my in-laws who had now become my parents because, um, when you have ookie parents, sometimes you have surrogate parents and my in-laws had become that for me. And, um, you know, everyone was looking to me to answer questions and to be the strong person. And I was falling apart. Um, in fact, my um, Apple watch started telling me I was falling apart. It said, you may need to seek medical attention. Your heart rate is too high. <laughs> An Apple Watch. <laughs> Good old Apple Watch knew what was going on, um, and uh, and then had to make the tough decision to have them stop working on him. And you know, love is such a powerful thing. Um, I didn't even know, but the waiting room in the hospital, um, in the emergency room, was full of people who loved Michael and me, um, just waiting um, for good news. And then once they found out the bad news. They were waiting to be there to support me and my children. Um, incredible amount of love shown um, from so many people that I didn't even know. Um, and, you know, and we planned his funeral that next week. And um, I planned maybe 250 people might come to his funeral um, in my mind. Right. And so I got a call from a friend and she's like, I know that you're, you are planning for 250 Marlene. I really think you need to find a venue that can do 500. And in our area, Saturday churches on Saturday are not available because they're all doing Saturday church. Cause we're in such a hyper growth area that churches aren't available on Saturday. So we had to rent a venue. And so I, we rented a different venue that could seat 500 and two days before, her husband called me and said, I've rented a different venue for you. We think there's going to be over a thousand people at Michael's funeral. And I was like, I don't think Michael even knows a thousand people. <laughs> sure. And we get there the night before the funeral and look at the setup and how we we're going to do everything. And um, they had a thousand chairs. And I just looked around and I said, there's no way there's going to be a thousand people here. What are you guys thinking? This is going to be horrible. His family is going to be humiliated when they show up here and only 30 people come. Um, I said, we didn't even have 50 people at our wedding. Why would a thousand people come to our funeral? Um, and my girlfriend um, said to me, Marlene, that's how many lives you guys have touched. And they're here for you and they're here for him. 
my hand to God, there were over a thousand people there. There were people standing. You were at the funeral. There were people standing. Um, And I could just look around and I was just stunned. How is this quiet, quiet man who just smiled and never, you know, was out in the front? You know, he wasn't that charismatic, on fire type of guy. And all of these people loved him. And, um, and the messages that I received were just every time I saw your husband, he was smiling. And then the messages I received from students, I haven't even read all of them and it's been four years. The letters that I received from students telling me how my husband touched their lives, that one day they had a conversation in the library about this. And oh, when I was out on the softball field, he told me this and it stuck with me my entire life. And I was like, Oh my God, he did for all of those other human beings what he did for me. And I thought I was the special one that he was doing it for. And yet he was doing it every single day with every single person that he came in contact with. And so what a blessing for me is that that sounds crazy to say that his funeral was a blessing for me. Um, you know, we have tragedy and we have to learn to, to live with it and overcome and look at the good that happens in tragedy. We, we just do, you know, and in my mind, I have to, or else I'll go crazy. Um, and so I started to think about what did I keep Michael from doing? Because I was afraid he was going to die. And I, what did I keep myself from doing? Because I was afraid we were going to die. Um, And I didn't let him live his best life because I was so afraid. Um, I didn't let him be the adventurer that he was born to be because I was so fearful of losing him and I lost him anyways. Um, And so, you know, the lessons that I've learned from this man continue to just bless me every single day. Michael would have loved to spend the rest of his life out in the woods, sitting in a, uh, I forget what they're, a blind looking for elk. (laughs) He didn't have to shoot them. He just wanted to watch them, (laughs) but shooting them was good too, because that provided me. Um, But uh, yeah, he just, he, he loved to do all of these things. And I was always afraid to let him really just be and do all of those things. And so in the last four years, I've done things that I would have never done before. Um, and I've taken risks that I wouldn't have taken before to honor Michael. And I think that he wanted me to become more than I ever was. And through his death, I've learned to be the person that he imagined me to be. And I never had the gumption to do those things. Um, so, you know, his love just completely transformed me. And, you know, in addition to all of those things, they transformed me because I have four beautiful children that I get to look at and see every single day and, and know that he created that with me. Yeah. So I'm glad I'm, I'm, I'm over here, like trying not to cry the whole time, (laughs) but I think. I want to just add for those listening, because you've just brought up so many beautiful points. And, you know, I, I hope that if you're listening, you're hearing, we talk a lot about this, a smile, a hug. I see you. 
those small, small things are what actually impact. And then, like you said, living and not letting fear control you or those you love, you know, and allowing them to live. These are such beautiful and deep truths that we sometimes in the hustle or the need to be impactful, we forget it's these things. This is it. This is the truth, right? These are the divine truths. And I also want to shine a little light on you because my dear friend, you know, he changed you, but you in turn changed others. And that's for those who are listening and do not know Marlene the way I do, impacts hundreds and hundreds of life all the time through the work she does at school. And that is you took his love that he gave you and, and how it transformed your life. And you have taken that and reflected it out to the children you work with. And I've seen that consistently, including you have this whole education transformation project you're doing, right? right. So tell us a little bit about how we, how can we transform kids are growing up in a crazy world. They are. And you know what? Kids always grew up in a crazy world. Yep. You always say that too. I love it. You know, uh, it, it, the problems are different, but we all, we've always had problems and, you know, um, we've got to meet kids where they're at and we need to, um, figure out a way to change education so that we can really truly meet the needs of our children. And, you know, I think back, um, about my childhood, um, and I can identify those teachers that knew me. I, Mrs. Brislin, my fourth grade teacher, she saved me, you know, and I think back and she had no idea at the time. Um, and she just saw this little girl who came to school smelling like cat pee with her hair matted to the back of her head, who didn't know how to use a toothbrush, who always caused problems in school. Um, because I was a fighter, you know, because of how we grew up, I was a fighter and I was an angry, angry little kid. And what we need to realize is who's going to be Mrs. Brislin for that kid, right? And so who, who's championing for that kid? And maybe their problem isn't the same as mine. Maybe their problem isn't that they have abusive um, parents at home. Maybe their problem isn't that they, um, their parents are drug users. Maybe their problem is their grandma just passed away this week and they don't know how to deal with it. Maybe their problem is mommy and daddy aren't abusive, but mommy goes to the medicine cabinet and takes pills and really isn't there. Um, or, you know, they live in extreme poverty. And so mommy and daddy are working two or three jobs to make ends meet, or they live in a single family home or with grandparents and they're working themselves in order to make ends meet. Um, and, you know, and there's so many things, you know, um, we're so worried about learning loss right now. Our children have learned so much over the last year and a half, just like all of us, they've learned how to navigate um, the pandemic. And yes, do we wish that they were meeting certain standards at certain times at certain points and checkpoints and st- stuff? Yeah, absolutely. Those are important, but there wasn't really any learning loss. They didn't lose anything they came or that they had two years ago, they, they didn't make gains like they normally would, but they made gains in so many other areas, you know, um, 
it was the adults who had a problem learning how to communicate the new way we had to communicate and work. The children picked up on it like that. (laughs) They knew how to do it. And so um, we really need to make sure that our children get those 22 essential skills that they need to successfully transition into adulthood. And what does that mean? You know, is English an essential skill to transition into adulthood? Absolutely. If you live in America, it's kind of important to know English. Um, But is it super, super important that you know how to pay your bills on time? You know, that you understand the concept of credit, that you understand the concept of a student loan and what it can do. (laughs) Um, And, you know, so all of these essential skills need to be embedded within our core curriculum and they need to be embedded in all of the classes that our students take so that as they transition into adulthood, they're not super, super smart, excuse me, super, super smart in the core areas, but don't know how to balance their checkbook or don't know how to advocate for them, don't know how to get out of a bad relationship. Um, Having crucial conversations, those are incredibly important skills that we need to successfully transition into adulthood that are never explicitly taught. How do we learn these things unless we go through the turmoil or have explicit um, instruction on it? And so just like Um, getting out of a relationship that's not healthy for you. If we don't explicitly teach children what a good relationship looks, feels, and sounds like, how are they supposed to know when they're not in a good relationship? And then once they figure it out, how do they get out of it? And how do they seek guidance? That's not taught in English. You know, and so these things need to be taught. And that doesn't have to be um, a romantic relationship. I mean, bullying and friend relationship. How do you navigate those things when it's not right for you? Um, And so these things need to be explicitly taught. And so um, the other thing is, um, I don't know if you remember being in high school, but you have children who just finished high school and one that's in high school. I equate high school to going to the airport and going through the security line and having the TSA agent bark at you, telling you all the things you're doing wrong when you're like, but I'm overstimulated. I see so many things and I have no idea what I'm supposed to be doing. Do I take my shoes off? Do I take my iPad out? Am I supposed to put my computer in something? Do I put my shoes in the box? Do I put my shoes over here? Am I supposed to take off my jacket? Am I supposed to wear my jacket? Oh my gosh, should I take off my necklace too? And you're going through all of these things And then you have someone barking at you and yelling at you because you don't know what you're supposed to do. You know, I I don't know about you, but I don't respond well to being barked at. And our children that go to high school have all of this overstimulus coming at them all the time through school, not to mention cell phones, not to mention all of those things. And then what do we do as the adults in the room who actually know how to navigate high school because we've been there before, we just start barking at them instead of saying, hey, Johnny, I see that it's 8.02 and class started at 8. What can I do to help you get there? I don't know if you've been on a high school campus, but this is what it looks and sounds like at some high school campuses. It's 8.02. Why aren't you guys in class? Get to class. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Whereas maybe Johnny got to campus two minutes ago 
because they ran over a dog on the way to school. Yeah. Um, and he's still thinking about the fact that they ran over a dog on the way to school, you know, or, um, or he's having health issues or, or so many of the things I remember, um, I was working at a school, working at the same school as Marley. <laughs> That's how we met. And I remember my speaker just went out just two seconds. I remember that I was talking with a parent and this kid was really struggling. And I remember saying, I just love your son. And she said, no, you don't. I said, I don't. <laughs> no, you don't. You're not allowed to love my son. That's unprofessional. And she really was very upset and yelled at me. And it was kind of a very awkward, horrible situation, but it was interesting. It took me time to process that actually, yes, I could love her son. I just couldn't tell her apparently I loved her son. But loving her son is what allowed me to see beyond the behaviors into that there was something more going on and how could I support and serve this child instead of. So when you talk about how love transforms, all the things you're talking about, there has to be this seed, this kernel of at least like. Right. And a lot of teachers don't have like right now, but of at least like, because it, when you like someone, when you care about someone, when you love someone, it transforms how you see them Absolutely. and therefore how you respond to them. And I may not like the choices that you make, and I may not like the actions that you're taking, but I love you. Number one, I love you because you're a human being. Mm -hmm. And I don't want any harm to come to you. And I can see the potential in you that you have no idea was there. Just like Michael saw the potential in me that I had no idea was there. And, um, you know, imagine what an amazing, wonderful place our schools would be if we admitted to one another that we love each other out of human kindness um, and, and start there and teach children that we should love other human beings, no matter what, no matter what. And if we can always look at what they're doing through a lens of love, it's much easier to understand what their story is and to be compassionate and have empathy through what they're going through. And, you know, one of my favorite mentors, um, someone that you know, um, she said to me, Marlene, we have to consider the possibilities. So every time we're thinking, why the heck did they make that decision? Consider the possibility that their decision-making process has to do with something that I have no idea what it is. And that was the best decision for them to make at that time. Um, and if it wasn't the best decision, then it's our jobs as the adults in the room to give them that explicit instruction at that time, because we do love them. And, you know, discipline doesn't have to be punitive. Discipline can be, we're going to have some great conversations and we're going to talk through this so that you can make a different decision next time. Um, and, you know, if punitive measures worked, our institutions um, would be empty. You know, we wouldn't have anyone in jail because, hey, if you know you do this, there's going to be this consequence. So obviously you're not going to do it. We, we would have empty jail systems. But what does work is when, you know, Johnny 
and I feel so bad for Johnny. He's such a bad kid. I don't know if you've noticed that before, but when Johnny's doing something you don't like, um, let's say he's calling somebody an ookie name because he's being unkind, is, is a, a, a punitive measure going to change that behavior? Probably not. However, having conversations with him, going through social stories with him, building a relationship with him and talking to him about what it does to someone when you say those unkind things and having him relate it back to himself. And when someone has possibly said um, or done unkind things to him, that will get the results that we're looking for. And, then, and holding a child accountable doesn't mean that they get away with it and they don't have a consequence. It's just the consequence really needs to number one, match the, um, the behavior, um, what they did wrong, but also it needs to lead to a restorative justice where we're restoring things back to the way they were and we're making things right. Um, you know, I had a, a wonderful, sweet little boy gifted beyond belief, so smart, but so immature in so many other ways. And uh, he was dumping ramen down the drinking fountain. I couldn't figure out who was doing it. Finally caught him. And I, I just was so mad. I'm like, why would you do this? You know, and, and I was internally mad, but I wasn't unkind to him. And I'm, and I'm like, you need to give me the reason. I don't understand. There has to be something logical in your mind to do this. And he was like, well, I didn't want to put it in the trash can because then the janitor would have water in the trash can. And so it made sense that it would go down the drain. And I didn't mean to have ramen go in there. I was just trying to get rid of my liquid. And oh, I'm like, no. okay. So he rationalized it. And I'm like, okay, I, I could see that when I was your age, I could see me having that rationalization that, well, the janitor is going to get mad if I put it in the bag, you know, versus mm -hmm. putting it down the sink. And we talked it through and we talked about what the janitor had to do to clean that up and sanitize it. And what about all the kids that had to drink the water out of the fountain afterwards? And I'm like, baby, you need to be thinking about this. How are you going to make this right with the janitor that had to do all of this work? And he had to pull out the trap and, you know, uh, do some plumbing work and all of that. What are you going to do to him for him to make this up to him? And he was like, he was like, well, just tell me, do I need to go to detention? I know I'm like, no, baby, I want you to go home and think about this. And you do all the thinking. I didn't do any of the wrong things. So I don't want, I shouldn't have to do all the thinking. So you do the thinking tonight. I need you to come see me before you go to first hour in the morning. And I need you to share with me what you're going to do to make this right for the janitor. I completely forgot. I had, I, I completely forgot the conversation when he came to my office in the morning. I'm like, oh, thank goodness he remembered. And his way he was going to give back to the janitor was he was going to clean the gymnasium floors every day before school. He's going to get there half an hour early. He worked it out with his mom and he was going to clean the floors. And he figured that he needed to do that for a month straight because that was about the amount of time that he had figured that he had been putting the um, ramen down the drain and that that was the perfect amount of time to give that janitor back that time. I was thinking like he could stay after school and like rake rocks for an hour, you know? And here he is giving up a month of before school. And you know that, that young man did it every single day. Now who benefited from that? The janitor, you know, 
the kids because he probably told the other kids don't do that mrs armstrong will make you clean the gym for a month uh <laughs> you know and he did all of the thinking and he never did it again yep. i could have given him an after-school detention for a half an hour i could have made him rake rocks for an hour um but none of that would have taught him the lesson that he learned an essential skill you know and yeah. so um but we did it out of love Leanna Hunt, who I adore, she said, a boundary made with love will always be stronger, last longer, leave a stronger impression than a boundary made with hate or frustration or anger. She said, always will. A boundary made with love will always win. And this, this story you just told illustrates that so beautifully because it, it wasn't, as you said, it was love for each person. Right. You to the student, the student to the janitor, the janitor back now to you and the student because you both respected him. The song Imagine just keeps flying through my head, right? Imagine all the people <laughs> <laughs> live in the world in peace if we could truly just, as you said, love humans for just humans and no other way, not romantically, not any of that, just love. Mm-hmm. It's kindness. I love it. It would truly transform the school. It would transform the individuals. It would transform the world. I love it. Marlene, do you have any last words you'd like to say before we wrap up? And if people want to reach out to you and talk to you, because I know we have educators who listen to this podcast, how can they find you? Um, so uh, Education Transformation Project. I'm on Facebook and, um, you know, all of I hear Bridget say all the things. Um, <laughs> Instagram, I'm much better at Facebook than I am at am Instagram. But uh, Education Transformation Project, Marlene, um, Marlene Laney Armstrong, and you can email me at Marlene at educationtransformationproject.com. Any of those things will work. Um, honestly, my goal is to give everyone the tools that they need to transform education. And together, we're all going to do great things. Um, and it, it's, it's, it's doable. You know, we've had free and appropriate education since um, we became a country. And the fact that we haven't figured it out yet is is crazy. And the thing is, we're doing great things each and every day, each and every day. We have teachers that are doing great things and we have pockets of greatness going on. Now we need to just make that an all in all of our schools, in every classroom across the board. And so we're sharing great things that are happening in schools across the nation and talking about great practices across the nation and really um, helping our teachers and our administrators um, meet the needs of students. And that's what it's about. And I'm excited. I'm excited about the possibilities for my grandchildren. I want better for my grandchildren than my children had and definitely better than what I had. And I'm excited about that possibility. Awesome. And I cannot think of a better person to lead the charge than you. Thank you so much for coming on, Marlene. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. And I'm excited. I wait every Wednesday morning for your podcast. (laughs) Every Wednesday morning. (laughs) Listen, every Wednesday morning, subscribe, all the things. That's right. I, and I, Bridget, I listened to all of her podcasts in one day at two times speed because I was so excited about how great they were. And so I went back and listened to every single one. So I remember it scared the heck out of me when you text me. I listened to them all. All of them? Yes, all of them. I was like, oh shoot. 
<laughs> but I'm thankful for you always. And I love this podcast because we get to have great conversations like we just had. I mean, it's beautiful. So thank you. And thank you for loving me just the way I am. That's easy. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of the Strong and Capable podcast. You're my hero for listening, and you would be my extra special hero if you would share this episode, share with your friends what you're listening to and what you love about it, and bring them into the community. If you want to connect more, you can join me on my favorite place, Instagram. It's Bridgette.Heller, B-R-I-G-E-T-T-E dot H-E-L-L-E-R. Or you can find us on the Facebook page, The Strong and Capable. It's a private group. I will let you in and then you can Zoom with us twice a month where we have special guests and we talk more about these subjects that we're hitting on in the podcast. Of course, if you want to go further, there is always the Launch Your Podcast in 30 Days course where you can Zoom with me every week and we'll get your voice into the world and so many other ways. So find that all at www.thestrongandcapable.com. And remember, friends, you are exactly that. You're strong and capable. Talk to you later.